Welcome to FinTech in the Cloud with AWS, your direct line to the founders, investors, and startups who are shaping the ever-evolving world of FinTech. I'm your host, Sakai Ndamanga. It's a new year, and we're officially kicking off season two of FinTech in the Cloud. We have some really great guests lined up for the season. I'm really excited for you to all get a chance to listen to them. But to kick off our season, we are going to have something slightly different on this episode. It is a thought-provoking and insightful panel conducted in November at the Africa FinTech Summit, moderated by yours truly. The panel comprised of AWS customers who are influencing the trajectory of FinTech in Africa. The esteemed guests on the panel were Emma Dean Lobel, COO of Paystack, Cheslin Jacobs, Chief Commercial Officer at TimeBank, Wiza Jelakazi, VP of Global Merchant Business at Chippercash, and our podcast friend, Munya Chura, Head of Growth for Rest of Africa at Flutterwave, who at the time this was recorded was still at Flutterwave and recently transitioned roles. The panel was titled Africanization of Global Fintech, quite a mouthful. And we got a chance to talk about multiple things from what the title really means. We dug into that a little bit because it was slightly controversial to the trends that we're seeing in the continent, as well as the notion of African fintechs expanding outside of Africa in markets such as Asia, with time in, in the Philippines, and with Chippercash and Flutterwave expanding in the US and Europe as well, respectively. If you're interested in this topic and want to learn more about AWS in Africa, we recently published a white paper titled The Growing Role of Cloud in Africa's Fintech Sector. You can find it in the show notes and enjoy. I'm really happy to be here. I'm based out of New York City, but I'm very, very, very much so proudly African. So before we start the panel, I thought it might be nice for us to introduce everybody else on the panel. Perhaps we can start from you, Wiza. Start with you, who you are, where you're representing. Obviously, you're representing, you know, a, a fintech, Chibakash, and what problem you're solving in your market. I'm Wiza Jalakasi. I'm Vice President of Global Merchant Business at Chippercash. We're a cross-border consumer-facing payments app, enabling people to move money across borders more easily. And yeah, we're happy to be serving millions of customers on the continent today. Great. And you, Munya? My name is Munya Chiura. I am Head of Growth for the rest of Africa for Flutterwave. The challenge that we are solving across Africa is the disparate payment methods that exist across the entire continent. Today we've built one of the largest payments infrastructure companies across Africa, supporting over 150 payment methods across 28 African countries, really helping businesses grow across the continent. Good morning. I'm Cheslin Jacobs, currently the Chief Commercial Officer at, at Time Bank. And I think like any other fintech, that's probably the biggest problem we're trying to solve is what not to do. So I think we always think we can do everything really well very quickly. But yeah, we must probably geared for growth in South Africa more specifically and obviously scaling, scaling internationally now as well. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is Amandine. I am COO at Paystack. So I support and oversee a lot of the non-product and engineering functions. Paystack is an online payments platform, Pan-African online payments platform, born in Nigeria, but definitely with operations across the continent. South Africa is actually our second largest market. And the mission that we are on is to help African merchants grow their business. I think Africa has got 17% of the world's population, but only 2% of 
of the population that is actually transacting online. So we've built an omni-channel payment platform to make it as easy as possible for merchants to accept payments from their customers. Still just scratching the surface, I think, as we'll discuss, Africa's probably got one of the most fragmented and underpenetrated payments landscapes in the world. And so that's also a massive opportunity for all of us here today. I think one of the common denominators for having all of you on this panel is that you obviously are African fintechs that are actually operating outside of the continent as well. But before we get into some of the detail around what you're doing in some of those markets outside of Africa and what you're doing today within your businesses, I'm curious to get your perspective on the topic, the Africanization of global fintech. So when I thought about it and I read it, and I'd love to get all of yours perspective, is you could argue that fintech started or the genesis of fintech started in Africa, right? So if you look back for over 10 years ago, the whole notion of mobile money leveraged by USSD codes on feature phones prior to smartphones was technically a form of fintech to some degree. And when you think about fintech and the global ecosystem and the large unicorns that are coming out of the US and then in Europe in general, by default, you're assume that fintech is really being led by those parts of the world. What did you think when you heard the topic, Africanization in global fintech? Because to me, I would argue that fintech kind of started here to some degree, but I'm curious to get your perspective. And I'll start with you, Amadine. Amadine, if you don't mind. I actually fully agree with that. I think M-Pesa came way before Venmo and Cash App and a lot of these other um, innovations that we're seeing in the US. I think another example that comes to mind is Nigeria in particular has the sixth largest instant payments bank-to-bank network, NIP, NIPS Instant Payments, larger than the US, larger than the UK in terms of scale. That was something that was launched in 2014. And so in many ways, yes, we are actually ahead of the curve. And there is a lot of learnings from the instant payments or from like the mobile wallet innovation that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years on the continent. So it's actually quite interesting to see that. And you're seeing a lot of interest now from US investors, U.S. strategics, U.S. payment companies that are realizing that actually there's been a lot of value that has already been created on the continent. And again, given the size of the continent, it's just a massive opportunity. So I think it's a really interesting inflection point that we're in now because suddenly in terms of the Africanization, people are starting to wake up and to see. I think that's probably been the last two, three years that we've seen a massive uptake in just the interest in tech that has been created on the continent. Yeah. Cheslin? I think what Africa lends itself to is, is a real opportunity to solve real problems for people. And I think not only in South Africa, but across the continent, people's lived realities are completely different yeah. to what you find in more developed markets. And obviously, fintech is a great enabler to solve some of these real problems. And I think what we always struggle with most probably in, in, on the continent is predominantly adoption. Yeah whereas other markets must probably adopt technology kind of businesses a lot faster, so potentially get a bit more of the shine. But where I think the big difference is the degree to which we use fintech on the continent to solve everyday problems of our customers, and I think that must probably always set us apart. I think that necessity is the mother of innovation, and I think that Because of that, and because of the necessity that's required on the continent, by default, there has to be some form of innovation, hence the proliferation of so many things that are coming up. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. spot on. And always the, I mean, at least from what I know, the businesses solving these real problems always born within that country. Yeah. And the people solving it has often come from those lived realities. Yeah. And that practical real-life experience, you can't substitute that with 
no level of intelligence, in my opinion. It's all about, on this continent at least, solving real problems. And Monia, your thoughts? So I think for me, uh, I got troubled by the uh, word Africanization. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? It, it, please, it tro- please, it, please it, it share. Tro- it troubled me because it appears as though there's a sort of perception that there's no innovation that happens in Africa, right? Yeah. And I think uh, it's exciting because we talked about mobile money. For me, I like to give the example of the fact that USSD is a 25-year-old technology, yeah. right? And it's still very, very applicable in today's environment. So basically what we've done is the Africa ecosystem has looked at a technology and really leveraged it for the use case that's relevant for our marketplace. So, yeah, that's, I think for me that's the word Africanization gives it a different perception of that we don't have a lot of exciting things happening on the continent. The other word that I thought was interesting was fintech. So I also looked it up in 1850. Julius Reuters, who was actually considered one of the pioneers of fintech, and that's Reuters. Basically, birds flew from Brussels to Germany to deliver news and financial reports. So when you think about fintech, too, I think it's interesting where we are going in the future because it's really relevant not just 175 years ago, but now looking at it in a very, very different lens and specifically as it relates to some of the challenges we face across Africa. And what are your thoughts, Visa? I definitely agree with you that in terms of mobile payments, Africa has sort of been a leader in this space for some time. But I do also see some new trends that are pretty exciting. For example, in Nigeria, you have very robust regulatory frameworks with their BVN system, the mm-hmm. bank verification number. So it's an 11-digit identifier that you can use to basically onboard onto any new financial service pretty much instantaneously, only using that number in your phone. You contrast that with some of the onboarding requirements and more sophisticated markets like the United States. It's really day and night in terms of like how people adopt those tools in order to grow access to financial services. Then you also see like the per capita adoption for crypto services. Nigeria is an outlier once again. You see Africans who are hungry to participate more meaningfully in the global economy. They're the ones who are driving adoption of things like tokenized stocks, as an example, on blockchain technologies. And I think those trends are very interesting to pay attention to because they set very interesting precedents and models that other countries in the global south can emulate in order to grow their own access. And I think There's a lot that's going to unfold over time that people need to start paying more attention to, especially in some of the bigger markets like South Africa and Nigeria. Tons of opportunity to be unlocked. Yeah. And as you mentioned trends, I think it's also important to highlight that when you think about the overarching themes and trends in fintech in general, you'd argue even a lot of those trends that are predominantly in the U.S. or in Europe are also quite applicable in Africa. You mentioned blockchain technology and what's going on with that and crypto, whereas mobile money obviously is the flagship of what started it here. But I think you could also say that a lot of the larger trends are very applicable here, probably different use cases, but very similar to what's going on in the global fintech economy. Back to you, Manti. So you have an interesting story in terms of Paystack. So Paystack was recently acquired by Stripe. Unless you're living underneath a rock, you obviously know who Stripe is based on the valuation and their growth that's been kind of growing for some time now. Obviously, there's a reason they invested or acquired Paystack because they saw the opportunity in the market. I know Paystack is now referred to as the Stripe of Africa. Curious to get your perspective of one, do you like to be referred to as the Stripe of Africa? Because I'm assuming that there's a value prop that you have that's obviously differentiating you from Stripe, one. And then two, as you think about your growth and 
and you being part of this large umbrella that's growing, what are the best practices that you're providing to Stripe in the US in the other markets that they're actually growing in as well? Thanks for that question, Sakai. Let me just start by giving a little bit of background and an overview on how the acquisition even happened. So Stripe was already the largest investor in Paystack. They had led our Series A back in 2018. And so to be honest, the acquisition was a very natural continuation of an existing positive relationship. The two companies are very mission aligned, very culturally aligned. Stripe's trying to grow the GDP of the internet, which is a massive, <laughs> a massive opportunity. We are trying to help African merchants grow their business, but also in a way growing the GDP of Africa. And from a cultural perspective, I think stripes are incredibly humble. They have a very high bar for talent. And so it was already just a very good working relationship and a natural progression of that. I think the best companies are probably bought, not sold, if that makes sense. So it was not that Paystack was for sale. It was more that Stripe realized they didn't have a presence on the continent. They had already invested in us, and this was just a very natural next step in the relationship. So to come back to your questions, the first one, do we like to be called the Stripe for Africa? To be honest, even if I go back and look at early videos of Shola, who's our co-founder and CEO, when he was... So we were the first Nigerian startup to get into Y Combinator. And the easiest way to describe Paystack back in 2016 was we're trying to build the Stripe for Africa. And so I think that's always kind of been an inside joke, and it's just very interesting and wonderful to see that come full circle. Now they acquired us in early 2021. I think it's totally fine. We're part of the same family. We do run our operations independently and that was very intentional. I think we're just at different stages of maturity. We still wanted to have the space to grow. We're growing on a very fast trajectory. We wanted the space to even make our own mistakes with the right guardrails, of course. But yeah, that was a very intentional decision. And then to come to your second question, which is what have been the learnings? I think there have actually been learnings on both dimensions, both ways. So in terms of what we have been able to draw, again, being able to be independent, but having access to all of this knowledge and know-how. In many ways, Stripe is an aspirational tech company for any tech company. And for us, they are literally, we're building the same thing, just in a very different market. So just to have had access to that expertise, to that knowledge, to that know-how, we've really been able to professionalize, whether it's on the compliance side, just knowing and figuring out, oh, well, this is how we did it when we were at your stage, and now this is how we've grown, or market expansion strategies, or product roadmaps, a lot of our product roadmaps actually looks similar to what they have built over the last 10 years. So having access to people that have actually had to solve some of the problems that we're solving has been super, super, super invaluable. In terms of what we've been able to teach, I think, and to your point, the Africanization, which we can talk about whether that's a controversial word, but I think what we've been able to share is, number one, a lot of local market context. I think Wiza or someone mentioned it, just Payments on the continent, you really need to live and breathe it to understand it. You can't understand it from San Francisco. So just understanding how fragmented it is, how many integrations you have to build into your banks to have redundancies versus what you would experience in the U.S. or in Europe is just a hyper, hyper localized experience. So that's probably the first thing. The second thing, which was an interesting probably product roadmap reversal, was we 
build something called Payment Links back in 2016. Because not everyone has a website or even a very sophisticated mobile app, we had built a payment link, which is a link to a checkout form that you can send via WhatsApp or Instagram or anything like this. That's something that Stripe actually only built eight years into their journey. So I remember that was one example of where we were actually ahead on the product roadmap development. And maybe the third thing that we've been able to share is, again, to the point that not everyone has sophisticated websites on the continent, we've built a no-tools or a no-code storefront solution for small retailers to be able to sell online. And I think that's also something that one day Stripe was very interested in learning how we had done that, how we had been able to build storefronts and have just a plug-and-play e-commerce-in-a-box type solution for merchants that don't necessarily want to integrate Shopify or Woo or Wix. And so those are maybe some examples of where we've been able to share experience on both sides. And I think we're probably both the better for it as a result. Is it safe to say that your product constructs are going to be reflective of each other? So the way they have all these verticals, where you have those verticals? Because some of them are very specific. Not necessarily. I think um, it's very interesting. Even before the acquisition, when we were looking at our three or five year product roadmap, and these are all the opportunities we see, there is some overlap. But of course, to my earlier point, payments is so hyper-localized that we can't just take something that we've seen elsewhere and copy-paste. So I think it can probably be inspired a little bit where it makes sense, but fundamentally the roadmaps will look very different. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Cheslin, I know obviously Time Bank has been doing some amazing things here in South Africa, specifically around digital banking. I remember in 2014, when I was still here living here, there was a lot of chatter about this new bank that was going to be this large disruptor. Fast forward to now, you obviously are doing some amazing things in the financial inclusion ecosystem. You recently announced your expansion into the Philippines. Curious to know what your ambitions are in the rest of the world and why Philippines specifically as well. Well, we started the business about 10 years ago now, just over 10 years ago, and I think there were 17 of us back then. We indirectly and directly have about 3,000 people working across the world at the moment. As you mentioned, Sakai Bank number two, GoTime Bank, went live in the Philippines two weeks ago. We're properly excited about that, and bank license application number three has been submitted in Pakistan. So by probably quarter one, 2024, we'll have three banks live across the world, and Ten years ago, we said we wanted to be a multi-country digital bank, and, and the number was three. But again, as being a fintech player, you get there in three years since bank number one. Three is no longer the number. So we'll look for market number four and five and potentially scale all the way up to ten. And the benefits we already seen is that we were able to build the bank in the Philippines in half the time at half the cost than what we did in South Africa. Only because we learned so much building it in South Africa, we also a big client of AWS, so I have a full instance in the cloud. So replicating and scaling that becomes exponentially easier as you go. So we think we could build Pakistan in half the time we built Philippines and about 70% of the cost. And then we'll continue to create those efficiencies as we go. And obviously the benefit that that creates in our business model is that we fundamentally believe that you pass those savings on to consumers and not just write it into your bottom line. Because essentially our business is built on the premise of one, partnerships, and then two, being able to scale. So why the Philippines is our business model lends itself to certain markets very, very well. So we need a sound regulatory environment. So South Africa is always going to present that one. Philippines had openly invited people to apply for digital, what they refer to as digital banking licenses. And we were lucky enough to be one of the five selected there. 
But our partner in the Philippines is the third largest family conglomerate, and they own the largest retail chain. So by having a shareholder own over 2,000 retailers, suddenly you have full-on national footprint overnight. They also 70% unbanked, double the population of South Africa almost, 110 million people, 70% unbanked, but arguably the largest consumers of social media in the world. So a massively digitally native audience in the Philippines. And two weeks in, they're already breaking some of the records we had set in South Africa, not necessarily at twice the scale because they're twice the population. So that's our little disclaimer in South Africa. But they're already doing fascinating stuff there. So we're properly, properly excited about the bank in the Philippines. But I think Asia, and specifically Southeast Asia, lends itself well to our business model. Pakistan's a little bit different. The demographic there is slightly different. And also the geography is slightly different. Karachi is completely different to places like Lahore and Islamabad, for example. So we think we're going to have to probably solve for slightly different problems in a market like that versus South Africa and the Philippines. But again, we're quietly confident that we can do pretty much as much as we want to. And we find ourselves in a position where markets now come asking for us to participate. So again, we've got that luxury of choosing. But if the regulated environment lends itself to what we do, if the market has the right kind of partners that we often look for, so and that is scale, data becomes really important, and obviously footprint. Because again, I think the secret to our success has been necessarily not digital. It's interesting. We always use the word digital banking. It's most probably the two words that make me, that frustrate me the most because customers don't see it that way. And when you ask a customer in South Africa, a digital bank, they're like, what is that? Like, what does that make the others? So we need that scale very, very quickly. And then obviously a data. And if our partners have data that allows us to access and make some really, really clever decisions on the way we want to implement, then the market's right. So So we've considered a couple others already, and there's a couple more on the horizon. Was it challenging to build a case as a South African company building in those markets? reason I ask is I worked for a South African company. There, Some of them are here. And we essentially started in SA, obviously, but we expanded into Southeast Asia. And at times, we had to position ourselves as a global company for them to understand the proposition we're bringing to the market. Eventually, got into the market. I think they're your partner now in the Philippines, Paymentology. Curious to get your perspective on how you were able to provide them with that vision being from this part of the continent? Uh, I mean, numbers don't lie, right? Yeah. So we've solved for some real distribution problems, we think, in the country. I know Wiser spoke about having the ability to onboard customers really quickly is that we don't believe anybody in the world does it as slick as we do at the yeah. moment. And so solving for that's obviously a massive thing. Just last month was our record new to bank month in South Africa. That's 40 months in. We've proven that we can sustain that demand, but not only sustain the demand, also meet the needs of consumers. So I think when you look at the South African business case and just look at the hard facts, it's not, I don't think it's a very difficult business case to convince people internationally. And of the three markets, so if we get the license order in the Pakistan, we actually think South Africa is the hardest market to succeed in because mm. of how mature the financial system yeah. actually is, yeah. even though there's not many options. So there's big five, whatever you want to call it. It's properly, properly mature. South African consumers are somewhat apprehensive to change, and especially if it's perceived as very radical. So the fact that we've achieved what we have in South Africa, I think, makes it so much easier because in the Philippines, the adoption already is... It's numbers we haven't even seen in South Africa, to be quite honest. 
So the fact that we've been able to do what we've done here has actually made it easier for us to go global. Very cool. Munya, obviously at Flutterwave and payments infrastructure is kind of at your core in terms of growing and expanding your business. Flutterwave has presence in the US and in Europe, and you and I have spoken in the past around this whole notion of cross-pollination between two worlds and how both sides could benefit. I think when you and I had a conversation a couple months ago, there was a lot of feedback from people in the US that they were surprised that there was an African fintech that was actually based in the US. I know Chipper Cash also has a large presence as well in San Francisco. Curious to get your perspective on some of the things you're working on now at Flutterwave from Africa into the global ecosystem. And as you're growing, because there's a lot of growth happening in your ecosystem, what's next for Flutterwave in terms of your product constructs addressing needs of the continent, but also being leveraged outside of the continent? So I think this is the first time I will admit that Africanization will make sense in this context. Yeah. (laughs) So my favorite comedian... Dave Chappelle says Africa's popping. Uh, it is so, popping. Yeah, Africa poppin'. has been popping. Yeah. It's, it's popping. So, <laughs> and I think uh, Paystack and, and Time just give you some real context of why we believe we're excited about the continent, which is that how do you apply technology in more modern ecosystems that don't have solutions that we've already developed? You talked about payment links. Time Bank, if you haven't tried that amazing onboarding experience. So these are things that we constantly get frustrated about in our ecosystems that can very well be applied in markets like the U.S. A case in point is ACH. For those who are familiar with the U.S. banking system, it boggles me in terms of the fact that an ACH transaction takes two days. Yet we here in Africa have, and pause here from BankServe, we've got real-time payments. The instant credit and value of goods and services is happening right here on the continent. And so when you look at some of these applications, our view from a floodwave perspective is that the U.S. markets, European markets are seeing and realizing that there are use cases in two scenarios. One is global businesses that are looking to expand across Africa and are leveraging Africa's infrastructure in order to better their infrastructure. And vice versa, we've seen African businesses that are now looking and saying, look, I can expand my business globally. We've got a product called Grove, for example, which allows African businesses to be able to register in the U.S. and other markets. And so for us, it's really the cross-pollination of these opportunities of saying that what is it that we can provide since we've built infrastructure to help global businesses that want to do more business in Africa and vice versa, which is that African businesses are looking to expand across the globe. What's really interesting about COVID is... From our perspective, we built something called Floodwave Stores in 2020. We have over 60,000 to 70,000 businesses on Floodwave Stores. And again, it was a no-code, easy setup of a website for businesses to transact. That actually came up from the demand of customers saying, look, you know, what are we going to do during a COVID era? And again, that's an example of technology and solutions that we believe are still applicable even in more modern ecosystems like the U.S. And then maybe one other example that might also give you some context of where we're also seeing some opportunities. I happen to be born in Zimbabwe, lived in the U.S. for 20 years, came back to the continent. And I can tell you that if I left today and tried to go to the U.S. and tried to open up a bank account, it would be very difficult. And so what we're seeing now is this proliferation of services that allow people like myself and many people who are 
global and we've kind of removed those barriers is how do you provide products and services regardless of geography? And I think Flutterwave is one of the companies that we believe we can push the boundaries around this whole idea of borderless transactions, infrastructure that supports businesses regardless of where you are across the world. Now, Wiza Chipakash has had some interesting things in PR recently. There's also the partnership with Twitter that you currently have with the Creator Economy. There's your network API that you're leveraging as well, and I know you're more on the merchant side. Curious to get your perspective, because I believe your largest base is in San Francisco, correct? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Your largest base in San Francisco, you're an African fintech. Curious to get perspective of how you manage the dynamics between being based out of the U.S. as an African fintech, technically, and also what are the best practices that you share between each other? Like, is there an actual use case that you have where you feel like you've been able to influence a lot of the interactions that are happening in San Francisco? Because the Silicon Valley is very different from Uganda or Zimbabwe or Nairobi or wherever your presence is currently on the continent. It's also quite hard to manage Silicon Valley between New York City alone. So I can't imagine managing that dynamic between two continents. It's pretty interesting because we have a lot of our engineering base out of San Francisco, and we have a lot of like operation and compliance staff here on the continent. It does like allow us to combine perspectives in interesting ways and sort of like leverage the best of both worlds. So that has like led to interesting opportunities for us. For example, the integration with Twitter tips, that's only possible because we have people on the ground that saw that, hey, there's friction for African creators. They can't get access to this feature. But at the same time, we can call up somebody who knows somebody at Twitter <laughs> and then you can get a meeting. So that has been pretty useful. Broadly speaking, you know, there's like this myth that the African consumer, the African smartphone consumer, doesn't have like money to pay for things. But what's very interesting is that none of you over here perhaps use dating apps, but Tinder is in the top 10 <laughs> grossing apps on the Google Play Store in South Africa, in Nigeria, and in Kenya. But none of you guys use dating apps. <laughs> it's very fascinating. At the same time, you also see quite a lot of activity in the mobile game space. So if you look at the top grossing apps, you see a lot of Fortnite, Call of Duty Mobile, etc. And we were very surprised when we enabled the network API integration for some of these vendors, the amount of volume that is actually being processed in those rails. When you look at one of our more mature markets like Uganda, right? It's a very sophisticated mobile money market. We came in very late there. We were told, you know, what are you going to do mobile money in Uganda? There's MTN, there's Airtel, like yeah. who are you guys? Yeah. We now have over a million users in Uganda today who are also users of other mobile money platforms, but they come to the cheaper platform to spend on services that they can't access locally. So things like fractional investing in U.S. stocks, things like being able to pay for digital content online. And I think that's a massive opportunity that we are uniquely positioned to capture because of our dual presence, in a sense, having that Africa operation, having that sophisticated San Francisco operation as well. Coordination is never easy. You know, it's like a nine-hour time difference. So I'm always looking at my watch and, right. you know, it's always showing me the time in San Francisco. We've had to get really, really good at asynchronous communication, writing to each other as opposed to trying to schedule meetings. It just doesn't work that way. We've been grateful that because of COVID, people have had a bit of time to really adjust to what life looks like in the remote first environment. It's not ideal, but we are able to make it work because of that discipline when it comes to communication practices, write rather than meet. And then, yeah, I think that really has helped us take advantage of where the state of the world is today in regards to 
payments. And, and do you think that because the larger base is in San Francisco, is there a common understanding of the different culture nuances and dynamics, and is that respected from San Francisco? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Both founders of Chippa are native Africans, Ghanaian yeah. and Ugandan, and they sort of like set the tone with regards to what people should expect okay. and how people should engage with each other. I think there's been a lot of like mutual teaching and mutual learning because the team in San Francisco understands that they don't understand what's happening on the continent. And what that has allowed us to do is really build deep trust between our teams. So when I get on calls with my engineering and I say, I want the thing to do this, they don't ask me why I want the thing to do this. They just make the thing do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. I know we have about two minutes left, but just to conclude on the panel before we open up to Q&A, I'm going to start with you, Isa. In your mind, obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. But in the next 10 years, what do you see for Africa in the whole global ecosystem from a fintech perspective? And what are your predictions? Just curious. I think we're going to build the next generation of native interoperability tools because we have so many fragmented systems. Like, it doesn't make sense. I want to get to a world one day where somebody can move money from their chipper wallet to their time bank yeah. instantly yeah. and then move that via Paystack to yeah. Uganda. In some, it needs to be instant. Yeah. So I think we're going to really innovate native interoperability layers at scale, and we're going to develop protocols that start to replace some of the legacy technologies like SWIFT. And we're already seeing it happen with the pan African payment settlement system. I think it's been long overdue. It doesn't make sense that we can't move money at the speed of the internet when all of the rest of the world's information moves at that speed. Yeah, I love that. I agree with you 100%. Munya? So, Weezer, just a correction. You said Paystack. Paystack and Flutterwave, huh? <laughs> We're integrated with both. <laughs> For me, I'm hoping that we drop the word fintech because I think um, we're seeing more and more businesses go towards platform businesses. We've seen this with Apple. We've seen this with WeChat and all these different social apps. I think we're going to get to a point where platform businesses are going to be the future. And I think Africa is fantastic because we are building the infrastructure for other startups and other organizations to keep on building different solutions that are really relevant for the ecosystem and for Africa. Yeah, Weezer is a bit more optimistic on interoperability than I am. And the only reason why I can pronounce that word so well, we've been talking about it for 10 years already, uh, Weezer. And, you know, that would be amazing to see. Seka, I think there's a couple of more markets that's going to flourish, to be quite honest. And we spoke earlier is that I think Ethiopia, for example, is a sleeping giant. Uh, if you look at the population size, you look at the geographic makeup of that country. And, and you don't, I don't think you hear enough about technology solving some little problems for people there. So I, I think there'll be an emergence of a few more giants. A lot of the talks being concentrated around specific markets to yeah. date. And I think the next 10 years we'll see the birth of a few more. I definitely agree on the interoperability and the interconnectedness. I think Africa, even though we're 54 countries, there's so much opportunity to bring and to do trade and to do business within the continent. It shouldn't be easier to order something from Amazon in Seattle. If I'm sitting in Lagos, then ordering something from a Ghanaian merchant and paying in MTN mobile money or chipper cash or what have you. So I think there's massive opportunity there. And I think it's on all of us to try and figure out how to make the continent more connected. I think maybe one other theme is just in terms of regulation. It's such a rapidly evolving space. We've already seen in the last three, five years how much payments regulation has changed. I anticipate that continuing over the next five to 10 years as we bring in like more innovation and as the complexities just 
just arise. So I think those are probably two things. Yeah. Very cool. So we are at time. Thank you so, so much. I think now we're going to open it up to Q&A for anybody who have any questions for the panel. I think we have about 10 minutes left for questions. Morning. I'm Neelan. I have to say that we've got some of the best fintech companies in the world sitting on stage. My question is in the context of with Africa poised for growth over the next 30 years, especially expanding in population, how do you believe that we as a continent need to come together to drive real economic change and transforming the lives of others? There's so many variables in getting something like that right, right? You need the regulatory environment to play its part. And I think we've seen some solid progression across the continent. I heard the word patient capital. Uh, I don't always think those two things go together. And normally, in, uh, especially the guys with capital, they're never patient. <laughs> but the fact that we've got real problems to solve on the African continent, I think, presents a real business opportunity. And therefore, capital should come flourishing in. And I don't think there's... There's a deficit of capital in the world. That's definitely not the problem. And then I think you just need some proper will in country, right? There's always going to be a few catalysts that's going to start something, but that normally has to come from within. So I think it's a case of, call it stars aligning or a couple of very important role players actually agreeing to sit around the table and get something started. But I think from a business perspective, I mean... I think anybody on this panel would happily sit around the table if we think there's real problems to solve. But like I said, you're always going to need a couple of other variables to play this role as well. Just to add a bit of color on that, I think one big opportunity for us as a continent would be around sort of consolidating our regulatory frameworks. I'm always very amused when I talk to some of our contemporaries from Europe and they're like, oh, I'm starting a fintech in Europe. And it's like, you only need one license. <laughs> and you've got coverage across the entire region. For us, the real big challenge is Time Bank. I want to open a Time Bank account in Malawi. Like, I, I'm happy to be a customer. But how much effort is it going to take you to get into Malawi tomorrow? It's a big, big challenge. So I think if we work with policymakers, to lower those barriers, make it easy for one entity to access multiple markets at once. I think that's going to be a complete game changer for us to enable us to serve this vastly growing population of young people who are hungry and exposed and have an appetite for global services. For me, the worry is that the number of young people coming out of universities without employment means that we have a significant deficit challenge in terms of being able to fill that up in terms of employment creation. So I think for us, you talked about the companies here. I think we need many, many, many more of these companies to create employment. I know that previously people come out of university and they want to get a corporate job, right? Corporate jobs don't exist as many more. So I think it's also a reframing of ensuring that we can create an ecosystem for more and more companies to solve problems because these are real problems. And some of these problems can be solved by startups and by developers, by companies really tackling some of these real critical challenges. And they're there. And the great thing about Africa is that we've got very specific, unique use cases really across each country that can be solved. So I think for me, it's really trying to make sure we can do as much as possible to create an enabling environment, especially for young people coming out of university and school to actually get employment. Yeah, just to add to that too, I... 
there's this whole notion of like the population growing significantly, but there's also this reverse brain drain that's happening, right? So a significant amount of Africans are leaving, you know, the US, Europe, or wherever they are outside of the continent to come back here and actually do things. So that's kind of enhancing the population to some degree. Hi, Jack Ossoff. I'm one of the dangerous provocateurs from the public sector here to figure out how to better enable all of you to do what you do. My question is, I would hope, provocative. You all are running incredibly important platform systems that collect and manage all kinds of decentralized data on networks and operations in different segments of the economy. I'm sure some of the people here that deal in big Web3 dreams are dying to ask, but may have be too timid to ask, is part of your next phase not becoming Web3 operations? Are you not ready, designed? Is your destiny not to create DAOs and specialized management networks that, that create peer-to-peer new kinds of capital that don't have you doing most of your interface with traditional banks? There is a deliberate purpose to the question because a lot of the work we're doing in Gauteng, for example, in the township economy space, We do a lot of really interesting ecosystem work that creates all kinds of syndication and aggregation and clustering. But the financing flows all come from and intersect with TradFi institutions, with mainstream banks. You guys are the new edge of this. Time Bank is a bank, but you're not a typical bank. You're not our typical high street bank. So my question is, how Web3 do you guys go and how fast? And isn't that part of the direction of travel? I have a lot of thoughts on that. I love that question. Initial reaction would be, I think, all of us as fintech players, we are just people who plug in to the money pipes. And today, a lot of the money pipes are on traditional finance. That's your banking rails. That's your mobile money rails. Increasingly, we do see a trend where more value is being transacted on-chain. So if you look at Chainalysis' state of the industry report for last year, they claim that over $100 billion was transacted peer-to-peer across African addresses. So if the money pipes change, I think we have to plug in to where the money pipes are going to go. And at the end of the day, that does mean that we do become more Web3 focused. I think there's still a lot of work that as a, we have to do as an industry to sort of like disambiguate these things. What is crypto? What is Web3? Uh, from my perspective, it's just a change in the underlying data transit layer. So from databases to distributed ledgers. But, you know, at the end of the day, the app is still the same. And what's, I think, very important to keep in mind is that in the perspective of the consumer, this doesn't really matter very much. You know, Netflix doesn't come and sell you the uh, speed and performance of their networking appliance. Like You want to see content, and that's what we need to focus on at the end of the day. So certainly I think, yes, that's happening, and it is happening much faster than I think people realize, but the consumer doesn't need to know that at the end of the day. <laughs> I think for me, the key is that we still have a lot of opportunity to drive down cost. And when you look at P2P transactions, the reasons why we see so many P2P transactions within sort of the crypto space really is because it's also a trust factor, right? What we've found is, generally speaking, in ecosystems where there's a lack of trust of some system, people prefer to do P2P transactions. There's no third party. So to Weezer's point, I think the key thing for us is that we always have to be prepared to understand that at the end of the day, my customer as Floodwave is a business or an end consumer. And if I can provide value at an incremental reduced cost, 
then all of these technologies absolutely have to be looked at from a customer perspective. And as we know, with payments too, right, it's always driving down costs. And that's the, sort of our reality is to make sure that we're always in tune and in line with making sure we're, at the end of the day, providing value to the customer. To your point, I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. I think, especially we were talking about interoperability and having like pan-African payments networks. And so in the spirit of having seamless, frictionless, instant payments, of course, Web3 crypto has to be part of that conversation. But I don't think it's necessarily going to be at the expense of the existing rails will cease to be useful. It's probably going to need to be, again, I agree with Wiza and Munya in terms of thinking about it from the user or from the end consumer and the value that you can bring to them, just optimizing for that. Because at the end of the day, that's why we're all here, right? I don't think it's necessarily going to be one at the expense of the other. I think we all have like a responsibility to explore the best user experience and to build the best products potentially leveraging some of those rails but yeah i don't think i don't think the traditional ones will go away my name is lebo mukhabudi and my question is you've mentioned interoperability interconnectedness solving for the african consumer and essentially you're all solving for the same thing right similar for the similar problems developing similar solutions whether from an issuance point of view or an acceptance point of view So what I'd love to understand is how are you all working together? Are you interconnected? Are you interoperable? How are you doing that? One, because ultimately there needs to come to a point where the African consumer is not downloading multiple apps right across the continent. And a lot of your systems are operating in different markets. So are you doing that? As well as for the merchant, there needs to come to a point where the merchant is also not having multiple devices to interconnect with different players. Thank you. I think it's important to realize that Flutterwave is a payments infrastructure company. I keep on relating this idea of infrastructure, which means that the same way I look at the last mile, I as an organization cannot physically get to every single endpoint across Africa. And because of that, we do work with mobile money operators. We directly integrate with them. We do work with other aggregators throughout the ecosystem. Because at the end of the day, it's about providing value to that customer. So to answer your question, absolutely. In our ecosystem, we have to have that ability to work with banks. Banks are key to our infrastructure. Other payment service providers, other partners are part of that glue that really allows us to be able to provide that service to our customers. So it's a massive opportunity, and we mentioned this before, that Africa alone, I think we're still, we've got a lot more opportunities to be able to provide products and services and solutions to ensure that we can drive more value. So a lot of opportunity, and part of that we can't do in a silo. So partnerships are key as part of our strategy. We are integrated with Flutterwave. We're integrated with Paystack. I only need the Time Bank API. Then we can integrate tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, so we don't work with anybody on stage yet, but I believe we're FinTech, so we might be by next week. So, so <laughs> not, not too worried. Yeah, no, I think Munya actually articulated very well what it means to be a platform player and what it means to be an infrastructure company that provides a one-stop shop, basically, a one API for multiple different payment methods for merchants to offer, whether their customers want to pay via USSD or SnapScan, QR code, card, bank transfers. And so in terms of interoperability, we kind of see it as 
our role to, we don't choose how customers want to pay. We just reflect the ways that customers pay. And so we've done the hard work to aggregate all of that into one simple platform that we can offer to multiple merchants. So I guess that's the interoperability or the aggregation piece of what Paystack does. Thank you so much, Wiza, Munya, Cheslin, and Amandin, for this panel. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, please feel free to leave a review and rating. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please visit aws.amazon.com startups.